Thank you for listening to the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Um, today, we have a special treat. Um, my apologetics and Greek professor from Liberty, Dr. Chad Thornhill. So welcome, Dr. Thornhill. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> and could you just give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, um, I'm the chair of theological studies for the Liberty University, uh, now School of Divinity, um, which is the combined department of what used to be the undergraduate school of religion and the seminary. Um, so my role is to help facilitate uh, our programs and support our faculty and all of that. I'm uh, also an assistant professor, so I teach uh, mainly New Testament Greek and apologetics, um, occasionally some courses in theology and, and maybe in some other areas as well. Uh, my Ph.D. is from Liberty um, program in theology and apologetics. My focus area is biblical studies, and my dissertation was on uh, Paul and Judaism and election. So today on the podcast, we want to talk about the reliability of scripture. Um, I believe that is one of the most important issues that um, that is facing the church today is the Bible um, inerrant, inspired, and authoritative. And so um, I want to bring Dr. Thornhill to talk about this issue um, because there's a lot being said about this issue um, in the church and outside the church. And I think that it's important for us here at Jude 3 to discuss it and shed a little bit of light on it. So I thought it would be great to bring um, my um, apologetics and Greek professor on to discuss this issue. So Dr. Thornhill, I know you said um, when we were talking in preparation of, about the show that the way you approach this is a little bit or your view is a little bit different? Yeah, well, and it's not necessarily my view. It's more how we get at it from an apologetic perspective. So um, a lot of what you find in more general apologetics works, and um, you'll probably hear the influence of Dr. Habermas on me in, in what I'm saying, but is what, what he refers to as a top-down approach. So they look at things like the number of manuscripts that we have, how early the manuscripts are, the fact that there aren't major variants um, in terms of what the manuscripts are saying. There are lots of variants, um, but we don't find, for example, a manuscript that says Jesus rose from the dead and a manuscript that says Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We don't have those kinds of glaring sort of contradictions, even though there are differences between our copies. And so most folks, when they're talking about the reliability of Scripture, sort of build things from the top down to say, okay, well, in light of all of this, and in particular, usually what you see is a comparison uh, between that information and what we have for other ancient uh, other works of ancient history. So our manuscripts are a lot closer to the events themselves. Um we have a lot more of them. We don't have major discrepancies in terms of what's there and what's not. And so we should feel pretty good about the fact that, that the manuscripts are reliable. Um, I, I think that that's not necessarily a, a bad argument in and of itself, but in terms of how we think about this from, a, from an apologetic perspective, and in particular presenting that to those that are skeptical about what the Bible says, 
Um, to me, the stronger argument is to look at specific pieces of information and to look at the question of historical reliability on particular issues rather than looking at the general. So um, to me, the advantage to that approach is it allows us to get more at the core of, I think, the gospel message mm -hmm. um, rather than some of the peripherals. So, um, and a lot of this has to do with different, you know, different methodologies. So you'll find, I think, you know, presuppositionalists will gravitate more strongly to, to asserting the reliability or inspiration or inerrancy. And they'll look more look to deal with weaknesses, uh, in, in a skeptical viewpoint. This one would, would more say, okay, well, let's look at how historians, um, look at documents and that in and of itself is a, is a debate, um, in terms of method, uh, methodology and what criteria should we use and are the criteria that we're using even good criteria? All those discussions are, are ongoing right now, but it's pretty well established, for example, that, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, so you'll find very few New Testament scholars, and by few, I mean there, there are a handful that would deny that. Um, the, the large majority, regardless of their faith perspective, are going to um, accept that. And the reason that they accept it is because there's good evidence for it. We have sources not only with not only the Gospels themselves, but we have, which are very early, you know, comparatively to other ancient literature, um, which are speaking about events. So, you know, um, a history that discusses Julius Caesar, for example, might be written several hundred years after Julius Caesar lived, whereas the Gospels are written within potentially one, probably two generations of Jesus' followers. Um, so we, we have that, you know, that dynamic going on. Um, and so we can look at the crucifixion, you know, and determine that it's very historically likely that Jesus was actually crucified under under the authority of Pontius Pilate. Um, the and and so we instead of looking at the broad range and saying, okay, because the Bible is generally reliable, therefore you should ex accept it as inspired, and therefore what it says is true. Uh, that approach, from an apologetic perspective says, okay, well, regardless of what you believe about whether the Bible is true or not, let's look at what the Bible says about, about Jesus and whether or not it stands on good ground for us to believe that what it's saying actually happened. Um, so that, that's the approach that I'm more inclined to take. Um, I think the other one is, you know, I think there's validity in that to some extent, but if the purpose is to open up the window of possibility that what the Bible says is actually true. To me, our effort is better concentrated on focusing on what it says about Jesus than on some of these peripheral issues that tend to sort of bog down the discussion. And we end up in this, um, you know, kind of agree to disagree situation. Okay. So you're saying like, because the cross and the resurrection are the central focus of the gospel, that we should kind of only be focused on, using that as the launching pad for us to justify scripture being inspired in a sense. Yeah. And I wouldn't, and I wouldn't say only. Um, so to me, to me, one is sort of an in-house discussion and one is, is an outside of the house discussion. So if we're, and part of that depends on what we think apologetics actually does. Um, are we, 
are we building up the faith of believers or are we trying to be able to, to thoughtfully dialogue with unbelievers? And so from the thoughtfully dialoguing standpoint, to me, the, the more effective way to approach it is not to allow the conversation to get off on a peripheral issue like, for example, how old is the earth or um, what about the archaeological evidence surrounding Jericho? Did Jericho actually happen? Those are good questions. and I think there are questions that we should be looking at. But from an apologetic perspective, I think there's more value in defending the central message and then looking at maybe some of those peripheral things than to then to work to defend everything uh, because basically if we're thinking in terms of of argumentation um, and how we argue for inerrancy uh, there's really there's only two ways that it can be done and the one that's most common is basically the circular argument you know the Bible says it's the Word of God therefore it's the Word of God um, <clears throat> which obviously isn't going to garner <laughs> it's resting on a pretty big presupposition. Um, so for someone who's skeptical, that's not going to be, I think, at all convincing. Um, I'm basically just asserting my belief about it. The other approach, which is to some extent impossible, is to show that there aren't any errors in Scripture. Um, so if we're trying to defend inerrancy, we would then have to look at specific places where whether they're contradictions uh, internal issues or external issues where there's something that said that seems to rub up against what we have in another historical document or archaeological evidence. So again, I think those are, are important questions to have, but to, to sort of go from the top down in order to get to Jesus. So, you know, one is to say the Bible is reliable. It's inspired. It's the word of God. Therefore, what it says about Jesus is true. Um, you're biting off a really big discussion from that approach because you end up potentially dealing with a lot of peripheral issues that can sidetrack the discussion versus saying, okay, well, regardless of what you believe about whether the Bible's true or not, let's see what it says about Jesus. And if it, if we have good reasons to believe that it's speaking truly about Jesus, then that opens up some, some really big questions about what we, what we should do. Um, with what Jesus is saying and what he's claiming. And, and, you know, so, you know, another thing, for example, that, that you find in the new Testament literature is a lot of scholars. Uh, and again, the, the distinction to make here is not, we sh it's not that we should believe these things because scholars say them, but they they're saying them because there are good reasons to, to believe them. So it's usually given that, that Jesus was believed to be, a miracle worker and there's evidence again outside of the, uh, slight evidence not as much for the crucifixion but there's some evidence outside of the New Testament for that and then we have the New Testament accounts themselves and so you have folks like um, uh, like Graham Twelftree who's done a, a good study on the historical uh, the historicity basically of the miracle accounts and argues that using the method that he adopts that there are really good reasons to believe that Jesus was a miracle worker now, again, the debate there becomes, okay, well, was he a miracle worker or is there some sort of psychosomatic thing that's going on here? They're not actually miracles, but he, you know, 
he was using medicine or so there are, are explanations that folks will use that try to get the miracle part out of it. But the historical point is that there were some really unique phenomena that happened surrounding Jesus that and there was a fairly widespread belief that things that these things were happening. So those those things become, you know, sort of launch pads for discussions. And I think I think the cumulative evidence of the portrait that we get of Jesus um, based on thinking through things in terms of, you know, historical reliability is a pretty robust picture. And and to me, that's the the better way to approach the discussion rather than biting off this really big um, task of trying to show that there aren't any contradictions or errors, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the out of what I would view as the the not the outhouse, right? That's the that's a, a bad way to put it, but the outside of the house discussion. Uh, the in-house discussion would be, you know, what should we as Christians believe about the Bible? And we obviously are coming with different sets of presuppositions um, about what the Bible is, what what its purpose is, what its origin is from, and that's where questions that you know can actually get pretty complicated about what is inspiration and how does it work and what does that mean for the you know the final product um in the new testament that's a little bit easier because we have a better manuscript history um but most inerrancy statements will will talk about the the original autographs okay so what's viewed as inerrant is not the NIV or, you know, the NASB or the KJV, but the original autographs. And the problem that, that that creates, again, on the evidence level is we don't possess any documents, at least that are, are known to be the original autographs. Most of our manuscripts are from the 4th century or later. We do have some fragments that are earlier than that, most of them from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, a couple that are debated that may be 1st century um, and so when you're looking at the inerrancy statement, which is resting on the, the original autographs, which we don't possess, it really then becomes more of a, of a theological discussion than an apologetic one. When we get to the Old Testament, the, it's a much more difficult um, task in, in practice uh, because we don't have manuscripts that even re- would remotely be considered originals based on on their dating. So we're we really are relying on on um, some extensive copying history, and I think we have good reasons to believe that the copying was was done with a high degree of accuracy. And when we look at ancient copyist practices, and um, you know a lot of our understanding of of how the Old Testament was copied relies on later rabbinic traditions. So it's it's hard to you know it's hard to it's hard to be really robustly historically accurate simply because of of the limitations that we have um, from the evidence. So when we're talking about the autographs in the Old Testament, we have um, you know questions that come up. For example, are well when we look at the the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, there are aspects of that that we uh, so traditional evangelical belief would would assume mosaic authorship of of those books and so if moses authored them there are details that occur after moses death 
that obviously Moses didn't author. So if we're talking about the autographs, which autographs are we talking about? <laughs> are we talking about the ones that added these details later? And that and that. So there are really there are a lot of legitimate issues. I, th I think sometimes when we get into these discussions, it's it's easy to sort of um, dismiss some of the difficult questions because um, you know you'll have uh, sometimes the the what I would consider the more hardline apologists really go after you know things like there's liberal biases and they're, they're trying to undercut the authority of scripture and so on and so forth. There's a, there's a hidden agenda in critical scholarship. And sometimes that is true. Sometimes there is an open agenda. And I think in a, in a lot of other cases, people are really just looking at this from a, from a critical perspective based on their training. So there are good questions that, that we need to wrestle with. Um, so when you're looking at, when you're looking at things from an apologetic perspective, dealing with this as as an issue to dialogue with with outsiders um it really becomes something that if you don't have some really good specialized training there are probably going to be some difficult questions that come up and if if you don't have a grasp of the evidence it's going to be really hard i think to have that conversation effectively without running into some serious challenges that will sort of derail the discussion so so that's why my preference in light of all of those things is, you know, again, to to let's focus on the centrality of the message and look at if there are good reasons to believe that the, that, you know, the core of that is true. Um, the the insider discussion, then again, is what what do we do with this evidence? What do we do? How do we understand the nature of Scripture? And I think, you know, through one of the things that um, I think comes into the discussion is throughout church history, uh, the Orthodox Church has, has held a very high view of Scripture. So we shouldn't let these issues force us into some sort of a, you know, a disparagement that the Bible can't be trusted. Um, there's There's been a, a strong tradition throughout church history that, no, the Bible is inspired. Uh, and we have, you know, a handful of verses in the, in the New Testament that... Um, you know, that, that speak about, for example, you know, no prophecy was ever given um, from the origin of men or um, all scripture is, is you know, God-breathed, is uh, theopneustos, is divinely inspired, is how that's sometimes translated. Um, so we have this, this underlying belief that these books really are inspired by God. They, they were divinely directed. But the mechanism, and this is where you know the conversation in-house comes in, the mechanism by which that happened isn't ever spelled out in Scripture. Um, what does it mean for these books? You know, how did the Holy Spirit work? Uh, how did God work within these authors? So that so then you have different theories, different interpretations that uh, in-house among believers, conversations that occur about. How we should understand what it means for for Scripture to be um, to be inspired, to be infallible, inerrant, trustworthy, true. Those are some of the some of the terms that get that get thrown around in the discussion. Mm -hmm. I I, um, I think this whole conversation is important because in our day and time, especially with the events um, that are happening with um, uh, sexuality and mm -hmm. Um, just how people interpret scripture, the go-to 
used to be, oh, well, the Bible says, and right. because the Bible is not authoritative anymore, um, people are asking, well, why do we believe the Bible? Like, why right. is it authoritative? And throughout my seminary journey, you know, those are the questions that I constantly, you know, would ask myself. Yeah. Um, taking classes where you, you, you're critically thinking through these issues. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the contradictions and then you look and say, you know, really to say that we believe the Bible is true because we, we hold that the original manuscript was an errant when nobody's ever seen the original right. manuscript yeah. is, is re- basically taking a faith position. Yeah. At the end of the day. So you can argue inerrancy and you can sh- say we have manuscripts, but then you switch from evidence to faith because right. there's nobody's ever seen it. Yeah. And I, I think that's true. I think I think arguments. Arguments based on evidence for inerrancy are are very difficult. So I think it does become a faith posture. And I like to I like to use the and I probably use this in class at some point, but. Um, especially when we talk about exegesis and those sorts of things, I like to sort of use a play on words with with understanding the word understanding. Um, and I, to me, our posture as Christians towards Scripture should be one of understanding rather than overstanding. So we place ourselves under the authority uh, of Scripture because we believe that it is God speaking and because it is uh it is, you know, testimony to the ultimate revelation of God, which is Jesus. So what we find in Scripture about Jesus and the the teachings that it contains, our posture should be one of, of humility, one of seeking both knowledge, but also allowing Scripture to have a place of authority in our lives. And I think that there are you know, part of the part of the challenge is there are good and bad ways that that have been that that's been done within uh, conservative Christian or or evangelical or orthodox, depending on how how broad you want to draw the um, the circle uh, communities. Because, you know, for example, the you mentioned the well, the Bible says okay, so that that's that sort of settles it. Rests on, I think. Part of that becomes the the proof texting issue, right? So I just I just give you the verse, and the verse should settle it. And that has uh, that tendency um, in some circles, I think, has divorced what it means for the Bible to be authoritative over us from its context, because we just find a verse that supports you know X, Y, or Z, um, and we've really unfortunately taking that verse that doesn't mean taking it out of context doesn't mean maybe necessarily it's not saying what we think it says but there's a purpose to that verse in the larger work of the letter or the book that it was written in and when we just sort of pop it out um, I think a lot of our imbalances in our theology are a result of not reading well contextually in a lot of cases and you can see that i mean there are all sorts of examples of that where you know things are you know you might reach a true conclusion but you're not giving the full picture and the full picture sometimes is really really important not only for how we you know again how we posture ourselves and the kinds of interactions we should be having but also 
um, what other discussions should be included. So, for example, on the issue on the issue of some of, of homosexuality, what um, I think part of the imbalance that this verse says X um, has caused is we've unfairly targeted. Um, you know, homosexuality as sort of a special kind of sin, when in the same context in some of those passages, we have things like adultery being discussed and, um, you know, the Greek word porneia, which is sometimes translated as fornication, tends to be in, and again, context determines meaning, right? That's our rule. But in a lot of, in a lot of instances, that word tends to be an umbrella term basically for any sort of illegitimate um, sexual practice. So, the church has sort of gone soft on dealing with some of those other issues, but has taken this really aggressive stance in a lot of cases against um, against same-sex practices. And so that's where I think you know the context becomes becomes important because if we lose sight of the fact that there is a bigger picture to to sexuality and it has to do with what it means to be in God's image and and God's you know sort of purpose for all of this in the first place. And, you know, living in community and our, you know, Christian identity, being in Christ, being the central thing that identifies us. There's lots of pieces of that that we've sort of taken out of the equation um, when we just sort of do the well, the Bible says and and pull our verse out. So, um, so it, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Does it have to be a because I, I, when we there's a lot of talk about. Um, inerrancy being a like a biblical doctrine that we have to affirm in order right. to you know be authentic believers right um because when when you hear in the conservative evangelical christian world that that we you know are a part of some people speak about people who don't affirm inerrancy as if they're heretics in a sense right. um but when you start thinking through it because that was my position before I entered seminary. After mm -hmm. I entered seminary, I still affirm inerrancy, uh, but I I can see how someone can land on the opposite um, end, yeah. And that and I believe that they still be authentic believers. Sure, yeah. And I and to me, I think that's that is the the right way to approach it. Um, one of the things that um, so basically the question this, this raises is what do we consider sort of the, the core of the faith? And that, that discussion is, um, you know, as, as old as the new Testament, there are, there are lots of issues in the new Testament that Paul considers a, you know, a quote unquote gospel issue that we would never consider a gospel issue today. So for example, um, in Galatians 2, when uh, when Peter, he calls him Cephas there, withdraws from fellowship with Gentiles because certain men from James come, um, Paul says he's, he wasn't walking, um, basically something to the effect of he wasn't walking straight in accordance with the gospel. So table, table fellowship with Gentiles, according to Paul, is a gospel issue. You know, we're, we're probably not going to put that in our circle today because it's not that's not an issue now. Um, but as we trace that through the early church, too, the early church tended to focus on um, really the nature of God, Trinity, 
um, the nature of the Trinity, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, those things were, were what was viewed as the center of the faith. And inerrancy doesn't factor into the discussion. So to me personally, this isn't an issue that, that I, you know, am going to break fellowship with someone in over. Now, if they reject the authority of Scripture, if if they have a posture as such where, well, the Bible's nice and all, we can sort of pick and choose what we like from it, but it doesn't have a central place in my life as a Christian. Um, that, to me, is where the, the bigger issue lies. So if if they still are willing to affirm, I think, a healthy posture towards Scripture, that Scripture, um, because of its nature, informs how we live, it, it has a place of authority um, over us and over our faith community, versus but you know i might have some some questions about whether you know this actually happened this way or something like that um to me that that isn't a, an issue that i'm going to say oh well this person clearly isn't an, authentic, an authentic christian because i don't think scripture or or church history makes that into that kind of an issue uh, however, if they say, okay, well, this is what the Bible says, I don't think the Bible matters, or, you know, um, this is what God says, or this is what Jesus says, but this is what I think is is right or true, um, that's when I think it becomes problematic. It's not, it's not having the questions or having reservations about whether or not they're going to use the term inerrancy, um, but it's the, I think, the posture towards Scripture that becomes the thing that would be alarming to me. And just in terms of, of you know, sort of the people who have been influential on me, a lot of, of, lot of writers who have influenced my theology or, or how I, you know, do interpretation and those kinds of things wouldn't call themselves inerrantists. And, you know, I don't doubt their faith commitments because I've, I've um, I've not seen it in practice personally, but I see it in their writings and I see it in how they interact with others. Um, so even though they wouldn't call themselves an inerrantist, they still have, uh, you know, the utmost respect for scripture and they still understand that it should have an authoritative place in our lives as believers. And to me, that is, you know, that's the more important core of the issue. We might disagree about whether inerrancy is a, is a good term or not. Um, and part of that depends, right, on, on who defines it and how it's defined. That's part of the debate. Some people don't like the term simply because of how it's been defined in the past, even though if they're allowed to define it, they might be comfortable with the word. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would view this as, you know, if someone says, well, I'm not quite sure that Jesus was actually divine or, um, you know, I don't I don't think Jesus was raised from the dead or, you know, the Trinity is is bogus, um, and they, they opt for some sort of modalism. Those are issues that are going to be alarming to me because they were, I think, important in Scripture, and they became very important in church history as well. Um, so those things, I, I think, sort of help us to get a pulse on what should be the majors and what should be the minors. And unfortunately, a lot of times we, we make minors into majors, and then... Um, and then we'll break fellowship over something that, you know, I think if we were to think about it a little more critically, we we probably wouldn't. I have a, a friend who 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 would who always argues the position that if we say that we can 
we can have a loose view of inerrancy, then it's kind of like a slippery slope argument. We mm-hmm. have everything that we believe in the Bible is up for debate because right. we could say it's not it's not an error, which is kind of basically the the, the most conservative position on inerrancy. Right. Like it's the all or nothing kind of deal. Right. Um, how do you think we deal with that? In, in, in as apologists or just as just regular um, churchgoers, how do we deal yeah. with saying, okay, well, I can affirm that, you know, the scripture, I could see your view of inerrancy, but does that mean that everything in scripture is kind of up for debate as what, whether this is really inspired by God or not necessarily inspired by God, but this verse, mm-hmm. I could kind of throw this one out or I could keep right. this one. Yeah. No, that's 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 a very good question. Um, I think my first reaction is when when I hear slippery slope, um, it is one of our logical fallacies. <laughs> so, um, you know, to argue, well, because X happens, therefore, you know, Y and Z are going to happen um, typically isn't true. And again, I think there are lots of examples that that I can point to of, of folks who um you know, maybe wouldn't be comfortable with, again, the, the idea or the term inerrancy, but still submit to the authority of Scripture. I think I think there's a there's a possibility, and so again, to me, it really goes back to the importance of the of what our posture towards Scripture is. Um, if if my view towards Scripture or inerrancy influences my posture towards it, where I because I have a question about this verse or this event or whatever, um, that means I'm skeptical as to whether or not it has any value at all. Um, to me, that's to me, you're actually creating a more dangerous scenario with that position because if you're asserting that that's the only appropriate view, what you're what's going to happen is if someone comes comes with a question then that they can't resolve for themselves they feel the necessity to abandon the whole thing because that's what they've been taught. Um, so to me, there's actually more danger in having that sort of all or nothing approach than there is to, even though, again, I, you know, I would, I would hold to it if for some reason I, you know, came to a point where I felt like it was, it was intellectually challenged to the extent that I couldn't genuinely hold to it anymore. Um, my initial response wouldn't be, okay, well, I just have to, to throw the whole thing out. So I think that creating that sort of all or nothing scenario is is problematic just from a faith perspective, not only because it's it's maybe, maybe logically fallacious, but because if someone then can't reconcile an issue, what we're basically telling them to do is that they either need to reconcile it or jettison everything. Um, and there are lots of, you know, there are lots of cases where that has happened. I think, um, regardless of, you know, regardless of where someone stands on the creation, evolution, age of the earth, all of that stuff debate, um, there are those who have that posture. You know, if you don't believe in a 6,000 year old literal, uh, 6,000 year old earth, literal six day creation, then, you know, everything else goes with it. And so when someone, you know, maybe goes to college or whatever and becomes convinced of the, you know, the, the evidence for evolution and then decides that, 
they're going to just jettison their faith because of it. We've created, I think, a, a, a bad either or for them where I would be more comfortable saying, even though, you know, that's not where I am, um, don't give up on Jesus just because you have, you know, you have problems with Genesis. So I think it can, I think there, I think it's legitimate in some ways and illegitimate in some ways. I think it can, if we start to get into the situation where it's okay, well, I'm just going to pick and choose what I believe, um, based on personal preferences, or I now am skeptical that the Bible has any validity for my life and all. I, I think that's where questioning inerrancy becomes dangerous and, and we've gone too far. But on the other end of the, the extreme, having this, you know, this, I think, unnecessary false dichotomy that it's either all or nothing um, can also create some unhealthy expectations for for people where they feel like they have to just jettison their faith if they can't if they can't reconcile, you know, the intellectual issue um, on a certain passage or a certain question. Um, so again, you know, the warning signs to me are not. I'm willing to, um, you know, I'm willing to. I, I, I like. Uh, you know, I think Karl Barth kind of has an interesting approach on this because because Barth basically says, you know, I, I don't think um, we should put too much stock in inerrancy. But then he would never say, okay, well, the, these are these are the seven places where I think that scripture has errors in it. Um, he'd be horrified by someone who did that because he has, I think, the right posture towards scripture, which is one of, of humility and understanding. Um so that to me is where the greater concern is. Are you rejecting scripture as as a, a voice that speaks authoritatively into your life and into your faith community? Um, if you're not, I think we I think you know we can have dialogue about some of these issues. If you are, that's where I think it becomes problematic because then the question for me becomes, okay, well what is what you know, where is your authoritative grounding for your for your theological beliefs? And ultimately, if you're rejecting scripture, I think it becomes basically either, you know, the cultural climate or your personal preferences or whatever. And I think that's a really, you know, a really dangerous place to be. Mm -hmm. I, and I think this issue um, is the the issue of of the day that we really have to really think through um yeah. especially in in the african-american church community mm -hmm. um where when we talk about maybe classical apologetics what what the proving the existence of god mm -hmm. is to classical apologetics um in in maybe white evangelicalism i would argue mm -hmm. that proving the existence of scripture mm -hmm. is is the the kind of parallel to yeah. what classical apologetics would be for that because um traditionally in african-american community there's no there's a strong belief in the existence of god right so i don't have to start there yeah the uh, god is already assumed yeah however now it's kind of like well now i have to start at scripture yeah and so that would be kind of in a sense classical apologetics in the african-american community yeah no that's that's good that's helpful and and i think i think where um where I think it becomes problematic is when we when we look at I think you know most Christians are going to 
to accept that Jesus is, is central for our faith. We are called Christians, right, because of Christ. It's That's sort of the thing that defines us, or at least it should be. Um, and when you look at, you know, there's sort of this Jesus, I don't know if I would call it a Jesus-only movement, but there's, I think, a tendency to elevate um, Jesus teachings and rightly so. I mean, I'm not saying they're not, they're not important, but as central and some of the other things. So what we don't like about Paul, because Paul isn't Jesus, you know, we can kind of just ignore Paul and, um, and what that tends to overlook is it becomes a lot about what, what gets emphasized sometimes is yes, Jesus dined with sinners. Yes. He wasn't combative with non-religious people. He was combative with, you know, people who should have known better, which should raise some flags for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have that same Jesus saying, you know, to follow me means to come and die. So it's it's not that it's just all about love and unity and, and happiness. Jesus' message, you know, his own message is is one that's that he says is divisive. You know, it's going to turn um, sons against fathers and daughters against mothers and and brothers against brothers. Um, and it's a message that says, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And so again, to me, what, what that posture of following Jesus means is that I'm, I need to be open and willing to admitting that I probably don't have it all figured out and that some aspects of who I am and what I do very well might need to be sacrificed in order to follow Jesus. It's about, um, you know, one of the words that gets thrown thrown around, and I think the concept is really important, is cruciformity, which is basically conforming to this this posture of, of self-sacrifice, which Jesus emulates. Mm-hmm. And I think there's not enough willingness sometimes or recognition of the fact that when we when we refuse to submit to the authority of scripture, I think often what goes hand in hand in that is sort of deciding what we think is valuable and what, what we don't. And we like, we like the, you know, love each other, turn the other cheek, Jesus, but the, you know, come and die. Jesus isn't, isn't, um, an easy pill to swallow. So that that posture of again willing of of realizing that I I don't have it figured out and understanding that God's intention for me is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that means both loving and being willing to sacrifice aspects of my of my life and I be and my behavior. Um, I think to to sort of boil it down into a pithy statement is. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus calls us as we are, but he doesn't expect us to stay there, mm-hmm. that there is this expectation in following Christ that means that aspects of our life needs need to change and need to be sacrificed and need to be done away with. So if our stance on scripture removes that posture where we're willing to be challenged by what scripture is saying, and I, I think that's that maybe is, you know, the crux of the of the matter is whether I'm willing to be to be challenged both in my thinking and in my behavior by Jesus and by what scripture says. And if I lose that willingness, um, I think the legitimate question, the legitimate question is then to what extent can I say that I'm really following Jesus? Because 
it seems like at that point I'm basically just following the parts of Jesus that I like and not the parts that um, are, you know, in a lot of ways very essential repentance and so on and so forth too um, to the to the kingdom message that he preaches. And I think that's a good point because I think in the New Testament when Paul is talking about you know uh, false teachers, it's always you can always see the character of the false teachers. Um, yeah. Is there you know lust, uh, selfish desire, um, uh, the you know money hungry kind of um, idea? So it's kind of like if my heart isn't right or if I have yeah. my own selfish pursuits. Yeah. And at and in the center of my life then that means the way I look at scripture is going to be jaded by my own desires. Yeah. And one of, one of the other bad dichotomies I think that sometimes we create, and part of this has to do with how we, I think how we understand and how we frame the gospel is we, we sometimes create this divide between behavior and belief that is completely foreign to the, to the new Testament. And I think Paul is, you know, Jesus certainly is an example of that, but Paul sometimes I think is, is a clear example of that because often in his letters, he will um, frame things in this, what, what we refer to as this indicative imperative format where indicative basically means statements that he's making. We, we might call this like the theological, you know, the theological truth that Paul's talking about. And from that always flows for Paul the imperative or the what we should do about it. And I think, you know, in evangelical circles, especially where sort of an an easy believism gospel has been preached, um, and that's not all evangelicalism, you know, but I think there are there are strong tendencies of that where if you just believe the right things, that means you're okay with God. And that's very foreign to the New Testament because your belief has to inform your behavior. And so if your behavior is out of whack, that probably means your beliefs are out of whack as well. And you might be able to answer the right questions, but clearly if you're acting in ways that are contrary to what Jesus teaches and to what he calls people to and to what the, you know, the overall message of scripture is, then even though you maybe can give right, the right answers to, to certain questions, it, probably indicates that there are other underlying issues in your belief because uh, because your behavior isn't lining up with it. And that I think is the, you know, that's the pattern of scripture. And I think that's the bigger, the bigger thing because we, where we've divorced these sometimes in the past and only focused on intellectual issues or only focused on moral issues, the New Testament informs both and expects the two to be interacting that mm-hmm. what we believe influences how we behave and how we behave is going to influence also what we believe. Um, so the two have to be brought into conversation with each other. Um, and we can't just, you know, it's completely contrary to what the New Testament teaches to say, you know, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose again. Therefore, you know, I, I would call myself a Christian and then to behave in ways that are contrary to that, you know, that's that's half of Paul's letters are dealing with people who are who are saying that they're, yeah, I'm following Christ, but their behavior is contrary to it. You know, first and second Corinthians are probably the most powerful examples of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul's response is, you know, no, <laughs> yeah. if if you're doing this. I'm not sure you've quite figured this, you know, this following Christ thing out. And that doesn't mean we're not all on a learning curve because we certainly are. Where we start isn't where we finish. Um, but 
if we don't recognize those tensions and aren't willing to to move to points of repentance and, and resolution where our behavior and our beliefs come into alignment. Um, I think that then there are little legitimate questions about whether we actually believe what we say we believe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. And I think it's important too for us as conservative evangelicals to trust the Holy spirit mm-hmm. to lead and guide people in truth right. and not do what the Pharisees did and build a fence around the yeah. law yeah and when it comes to inerrancy because we end up doing more harm than mm-hmm. than good yeah we've got to we've got to speak it and we've got to live it we, it can't just be something that we teach and then we don't model it because our you know our lives are sometimes you know the the biggest teacher and the biggest influencer on people i, I know that for me you know in my in my journey people that i've most wanted people that i've most been willing to allow them to speak into what I believe are those that have modeled, you know, they back up with their life, what they, what they say with their mouth. And so unfortunately there are way too many stories. Um, and part of that is just because we, you know, we, we aren't perfected yet. Um, there are lots of examples of that in the new Testament. We aren't, we aren't yet what we should be. Um, but, Part of it is there are, you know, too many stories of, of, um, you know, influential Christians who have, who have gotten derailed in their behavior for various reasons. And, you know, the reasons are, are, there are, I'm sure, commonalities, but also differences. And that then, you know, unfortunately, even though they could be saying true things, that delegitimizes the validity of, of what people view as their voice um, because of these behavioral issues. So we really have to be intentional, I think, about about being obedient, being submissive to, to Scripture, to the Spirit, to following Christ, and backing up with, you know, with our lives um, what we're claiming that we believe with our lips. Yeah, because when you live it, you silence the critics. Yeah. And so that's that's definitely an important thing we have to um, think through. Um, the last question I want to ask is because um, yesterday I was talking to um, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Yeah. And he was talking about um, they he he just wrote a um, a new book on sexuality, and there was uh, uh, someone who wrote him calling him a racist. Yeah. Because he was um, um, he wrote the book and because um in during slavery and the Jim Crow um era mm-hmm. um conservative white evangelicals used the Bible to um kind of oppress yeah. African Americans. Some African Americans have sided with anyone who they feel is oppressed. Yeah. And um I t- I um he asked me to read the article and give him a response and my thought was um that the tragedy is because people have misused it, then any anything that any person view from that comes from a conservative evangelical camp that actually has a heart for grace and truth and doesn't want to use the scripture to oppress anybody right. gets kind of thrown into that group. Yeah, and so the enemy uses that, so you can't speak truth to another another race which is is disheartening 
And there's this kind of idea going back to the reliability of scripture Mm -hmm. that we just, you know, focus on Jesus words and we do away with anything Paul said because Mm -hmm. Paul's words were used to oppress and Paul must be the guy who was sent to oppress um, people groups. And so that goes with women, that goes with race, that goes with um, homosexuality, which is we have to kind of put all scripture on the same playing field. Right. Jesus words aren't um, aren't like the the words we follow and then Paul's words are kind of suggested things. Right. Um, they're all on the same playing field. So there has to be this reconciliation on the on along racial lines. Mm-hmm. So white evangelicals can speak truth to power to um, to black um conservative christians or liberal christians and mm-hmm. vice versa yeah yeah i i think there's you know there's a lot about that that is un, you know unfortunately legitimate i mean history is what what history is we can't we can't change that we i think we need to recognize it and to learn from it um and i think i think the you know the challenge that it raises is a legitimate one because conservative evangelical christianity is you know, unfortunately, fairly dominated by uh, percentage-wise by white people, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with how we've mixed politics, you know, and party lines and all of that with with evangelical identity. I think I think there's momentum where that is shifting, and I think priorities are getting better aligned, um, but we still definitely have you know have a way to go. Um, you know, in terms of, so I think there's, you know, there's an aspect of that that's, that's legitimate, but there's also an aspect of that that's logically fallacious because in terms of logical fallacies, if you deny, if you deny someone's position simply because of who they are, you're not dealing with their position. So, um, I think we do need to listen to more diverse voices and I think we need more diverse diverse voices present in evangelicalism. Um, but I also think that if we're being um, honest, we should also be willing to deal with someone's position regardless of, of who they are or what they look like or what, or what, you know, their X, Y, or Z characteristic is. Um, so I think, you know, again, part of that is, I think the legitimate criticism and part of it also is, is, you know, just I think logically fault logically flawed, um, and going back to the you know the Jesus versus Paul thing, um, when you compare Paul with his you know with his cultural situation, he makes a lot of fairly dramatic um, statements that that this narrative that he was, you know, anti-woman or or anti this or anti that really gets undercut. I mean, the fact that he is a Jew who is predominantly ministering to Gentiles when that and the way in which he's ministering to Gentiles by saying, oh, by the way, you don't need to be circumcised to follow uh, the Jewish Messiah. Um, that is fairly radical and fairly in terms of how he's reconciling, you know, what's a basically a racial tension in his day between Jews and non-Jews. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Paul is a champion that, that has just 
very much been misunderstood. And, and that goes, you know, that goes across the board, I think, into other areas. The, you know, the thing about, the thing about sexuality that I think is a challenge for us today is because it has been elevated to such a central place of human identity that if you're, if you're disparaging my sexuality, you're disparaging me as a person. And there, I think there's an aspect of that at which we ultimately can't dispute to the extent that someone who embraces that ideology uh, or that belief, I, I probably shouldn't call it an ideology, but someone who embraces that belief that their sexuality is central to their identity um, is coming from a place with different <laughs> presuppositions than I think what you know New Testament Christianity would look like. In New Testament Christianity, the, the central thing that's supposed to be the focal point of our identity is Jesus and us being conformed to his image. And anything that is outside of that, um, I think this is what Paul means by his saying there's no you know, there's no male, there's no female, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free. It's not that those entities go away, but those no longer become our primary point of identity. And in the ancient world, those things determined your social standing, whether you were male or female, had very real implications for what kind of you know life you were going to live, whether you were Jewish or Greek. Um, whether you were slave or free, you were you were constrained and limited society, you know, in society based upon those things. So for Paul to say that in Christ these things aren't there isn't to say that they go away materially, but to say that our central identity as Christians is who we are in Jesus. And so, again, I think you have to be what the New Testament calls us to is a willingness to sacrifice aspects of our identity that we may value societally to cling to Jesus as our central point of identity. So that doesn't mean that race goes away. It doesn't mean that it's not important. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it, but it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't keep us from listening to, listening to one another and from having a common denominator between us, which is, which is Jesus. Um, so, and the other thing I think that goes into it is, is, you know, the distinction that we've, I think, been hesitant to make in the past that I hear more, um, more evangelical Christians um, talking about now. And I think Russell, you know, Russell Moore is probably the most prominent example of this is the distinction between behavior and, and um, orientation. Mm -hmm. So what the New Testament is, you know, the New Testament doesn't talk about orientation, whether they had an idea about orientation or not, you know, is debated. Uh, but what it does talk about is behavior. So are we, you know, willing to to dialogue with and listen to someone who might say, well, this is my orientation, but I've accepted what the New Testament says about how I'm supposed to behave regardless of my orientation. Mm -hmm. um, we've, I think, been, been very hesitant to even have that conversation in the past. And I think um, I think the necessity of being open to that has has um, you know sort of come to prominence in the last year. You know, maybe the last six months, maybe the last three months. It's it's um, <laughs> you know I feel like the pace has definitely accelerated. Um, so I again I think there are, there are aspects of that that are legitimate, but ultimately, um, you know, we still have to deal with issues. We still have to deal with positions. We still have to. 
think through these things. And um, to me, that's sort of a, you know, it's certainly, a, I think, a hardline postmodern bent because, you know, softer forms of postmodernism would say we need to listen to other voices. Harder forms of postmodernism would say we need to silence those that are the majority. Um, so well, whoever has had the predominant influence, basically, we need to push to the sidelines. And I think we see a lot of those harder forms, unfortunately, present today where because Christianity has been a majority in the country, we now want to remove their influence entirely because, you know, um, white males have been a majority in the country in terms of their in terms of societal influence and, and um you know, structures and all of that, we want to remove their influence entirely. Um, and, and to me, that isn't, that isn't dealing with oppression. That's just shifting oppression. We just want to oppress someone different now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the right way to, to deal with that is to say, yes, there have, there are legitimate issues. And because of that, we need to look to ways to make things better. And we need to dialogue with people who are different from us and not assume that our position and our posture is the only one that's that's correct or accurate. And even if we end up dis you know, still disagreeing at the end of the day, um, respecting you as a person and respecting. So I think that's where the conversation needs to happen and not simply shifting, um, you know, the oppression from from one group that's been silenced and been illegitimately silenced to simply just silencing, you know, someone else. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the the approach that needs to be taken, because to throw everything out a person is saying just because they're wrong on one particular issue is is just it's inconsistent with scripture because yeah. there's no biblical character that's a hundred percent right on everything. Yeah, we can look at Peter and talk think through how he didn't really want interaction with Gentiles at one point and say, right. well, Peter, we can't use anything that peter is right say it right um and that's problematic so like you said building relationships is really helpful because it kind of tears down those stereo stereotypes mm -hmm. and um i was just talking to one person recently and they were um they read an article i wrote on charleston and they saw that I used all liberal scholars and then they looked at my bio and saw that I went to Liberty. Right. And they were, <laughs> they were confused. And it, um, and the, the great thing I love about my time at Liberty and, and you and the rest of my professors was you made us look at both sides. Yeah. And so the assumption for somebody who sees Liberty in somebody's bio is that, Oh, you're super conservative. You mm -hmm. don't know who liberal scholars are. You have no, idea about uh bart ehrman or anybody right is is um because you went to this conservative school but if, if you're there and you spend time as far as my residential experience you get to see that it's different and yeah. they do you know so you can't just i said that to say you can't just go from what your presupposition or your pre-understanding or thoughts about a organization or a person you have to really um, get to know um, the person or the organization, and yep. so the relationships will tear down the walls and absolutely, absolutely. So, Dr. Thornhill, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast with us. Absolutely, thank you. I enjoyed it, Lisa. 
Well, thank you. And I hope you enjoy another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on social media on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook.com backslash Jude 3 Project. And you can subscribe on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. And as always... We're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.